Are you looking for a fun activity to do this Halloween? Well, Murder in the Rain has you covered. This year, we are excited and honored to be partnering with Low Bar Corral at Revolution Hall for their Halloween party. For those who don't know about one of my favorite Portland activities, Low Bar Corral is a group sing-along party for every skill and confidence level. Ben and his team of famous musicians will lead us through some Halloween-themed songs, such as Don't Fear the Reaper and I Want Candy, breaking the groups down into harmonies until we sound like a chorus of angels. From hell! On Tuesday the 31st, Murder in the Rain will be joining in in the festivities. You can come by and meet us, pick up some merchandise, hear us tell some spooky stories between songs, and sing your bloody heart out. Who, Low Bar Corral, and Murder in the Rain, along with surprise musical guests. What, hosting a badass sing-along for theater kids, karaoke queens, and casual toe-tappers. Where, the show bar at Revolution Hall. When, Halloween night. Doors are at 6.30, show starts at 7.30, but come early to get a creepy cocktail, delicious dinner, preferred parking, and suitable seats. Why? To have an amazing time. We're going to sing, we're going to have a raffle, and we're going to admire everyone's costumes. This show is 21 and over. For tickets, visit lowbarcorral.com, that's L-O-W-B-A-R-C-H-O-R-A-L-E.com, and be sure to follow them on Instagram and Facebook as they have events every other Tuesday. We hope to see you there. It will be a frightfully good time. <laughs> Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days. Then, when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out for more new-to-you styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours and spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothing for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armour a try and get up to 50% off of their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised.
On occasion, we like to pull an episode from the exclusive Patreon vaults. And this week, because Mama had some crazy travel, we're doing just that. So please enjoy this episode formerly known as Welcome to Palmer, Alaska, which was dedicated to one of our Patreon supporters as part of the Patreon series Welcome To, where we dive into a case from a city a Patreon listener lives in. November 13, 2016, was not dissimilar from any other day for the Grunwald family in Palmer, Alaska. That was until their worst fears were realized when their beloved son didn't arrive home by curfew. The search for 16-year-old David Grunwald led investigators to the remains of his charred vehicle. As they continued their desperate search for him, they uncovered the horrifying events that unfolded the last night anyone ever saw him. All right, today we're visiting yet another home of one of our lovely Patreon supporters. This week, we're going up north to visit Linda in Palmer, Alaska. I've never been to Alaska. Have you guys? No, I would like to, though. So would I. I kind of want to do one of those Alaskan cruises. Yeah. I want to see those glaciers. I think it'd be really pretty. Yeah, agreed. Well, if we do the cruise, we're definitely not going to be stopping in Palmer. And here's where I dive into some geography and history if you want to tune out for a couple of minutes. Not you guys, though. You have to listen to me. Oh, man. I love geography. Palmer is located in the Matanuska Sisna Valley. That's a little over 20 minutes northeast of Anchorage. The first people who lived there were the Danina, I think that's how I say it, Danina, and the Atna Athabascans. And they lived in the area for thousands of years. These were semi-nomadic people who traveled pretty long distances and lived in small groups of under 40 people. Every year, they made summer fishing camps along the Matanuska River, where they also had several trade routes. In 1741, Russian settlers came to the valley where they worked to establish agricultural communities. Eventually, Russia sold Alaska to the United States in 1864. In the early 1890s, a man named George Palmer, an entrepreneur, created a trading post on the Matanuska River. And eventually the settlement became a small town and it was dubbed Palmer after him. From 1917 through the early 30s, the area surrounding Palmer had dozens of crops planted and even had a railroad added in the hopes that other settlers from the U.S. would be drawn in. But it wasn't until the Great Depression that Palmer really saw an influx of settlers from the contiguous United States. In 1935, an experimental farming community called Matanuska Valley Colony was set up. This was essentially a resettlement plan. They took 203 families from the states of Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan and planted them right there in Palmer to try to aid the states because of the Great Depression. Jobs, money, and goods were very scarce, and they thought experimental farming could provide jobs and money to the families and goods to the whole of the United States. The colony wasn't a one-of-a-kind thing. There were several others set up throughout the United States, but this was an expensive project, costing roughly $5 million, which today would be about $110 million. Oof. Nearly half of the settlement left within five years, so not a great return on that spend. Apparently, despite the beauty and the access to fresh water, the land wasn't well suited for the type of farming they were doing. The glaciers that had moved through the area left a ton of gravel, so the terrain was really uneven. Not to mention the people that they sent there were noted as not being the best farmers. So that's kind of a problem, right? Mm. 
Maybe you should have looked into that before. Yeah. Maybe had a little test or something. (laughs) So the main crop that they ended up with were potatoes. And the land yielded roughly 10 to 17 tons of potatoes per acre. That's a lot of spuds. Today, the valley is still known for its potatoes as well as cows as they have a grade A cow dairy in production in the valley. Now, the city of Palmer is pretty small with just under 6,000 residents, but it does host the Alaska State Fair every year, which brings in a lot of visitors. But as you can imagine, crime isn't rampant in a small town like Palmer, but it does happen. The highest amount of crime is theft. In the past 10 years, theft has been the leading type of crime in the area, but it has been decreasing over recent years. Violent crimes result in roughly 10 incidents a year, so not very much. But in the past 10 years, there have been two murders, and we're going to talk about one of them today. The Grunwald family, consisting of Father Benjamin, Mother Edith, or Edie, brothers David and Donald, and sister Patricia, are one of the 1,400 households that call Palmer home. David Grunwald, the eldest son, was a sophomore at Colony High School. He was easygoing and popular by most people's standards. He regularly went to Bible study at his church and attended both Bible camp and aviation and space camp every summer. He was super into mechanics and engineering and was part of the robotics club at school. I believe anyone could say he was well-rounded, but to top off his love of God, science, and Legos, he was taking flight lessons and had a girlfriend named Victoria. Someday, David hoped he would grow up to be a successful engineer. David was the kind of kid who had a lot of different types of friends, and he was close with his parents. There was a mutual respect between them. He respected and abided by their rules, and in return, they fully trusted him to live his life, allowing him to go out with friends when he wanted and all the other dozens of things that take up a teenager's time. It's every parent's nightmare to find out that their child is late for curfew because something bad happened to them. And unfortunately, in the fall of 2016, Ben and Edie Grunwald's nightmare would begin when David didn't arrive home one November night. On Sunday, November 13, 2016, David spent the majority of his day with his family and his girlfriend, Victoria Mukelke. They went shopping and went out for food and then returned to David's to do their homework. David's plan for that evening was supposed to end pretty early because he had school on Monday. He made plans to meet up with some friends at a hangout spot known as the Butte, but before he did so, he planned to drop Victoria off at home. Around 5.40 p.m., David drove Victoria from his home in his Ford Bronco. One of his friends, David Evans, called and asked for a ride, so the pair picked him up from a local pizzeria. David had planned to drop Victoria off at home and then drive the other David to an acquaintance's house, Eric Almendinger. Eric was pretty well known amongst the kids because his father grew marijuana, which leads me to suspect that a lot of the kids got their own stash from him. So that evening, they made their first stop at Victoria's mother's house just before 6 p.m. And I'm not totally sure, but it seems like Victoria was packing for the next day because David promptly drove his friend to Eric's house to drop him off and then returned to Victoria's mom's house and drove her and her younger sister, Crystal, about 20 minutes to their father's house where the girls would stay the night. On their way, they made a quick stop at a local grocery store to buy some water and then arrived at Victoria's dad's house at around 6.20 p.m. They said their goodbyes, and David mentioned to Victoria that he might head back to Eric's house for a little while to hang out before heading to the Butte. Right after dropping Victoria off, David called his mother. He asked if he could stay out a bit later than his normal 9 p.m. curfew. 
His mother agreed to let him extend by 20 minutes, so he said he would be home by 9.20 p.m. Thanks to the digital footprint most teenagers have these days, it was easy to look back to know David's whereabouts after he dropped his girlfriend off. Witnesses were also able to confirm that David arrived at Eric's house around 6.40 p.m. There he hung out with friends and had a good time. His phone records showed that he was online for over an hour having a conversation with a girl named Angela, one of his friends. Initially, they were chatting on Instagram where she had asked what he was up to and he said he was, quote, smoking a J. That's a marijuana joint for you straight edge (sighs) folks. You know, me. (laughs) He then asked her to move to Snapchat. That's the app that kids think makes the most sense to have and hide a conversation like theirs from their parents probably for the best. But, you know, do keep in mind the company has those chats. They continued talking a bit and their conversation ended at around 8 p.m. About 35 minutes later, David's digital footprint ended. Edie Grunwald was the type of parent who waited up for her child. She grew concerned as the minutes ticked past 9.20. By 9.40, she started making calls. David wasn't answering his phone, so she called Victoria. Victoria, who was now in bed, confirmed that David had dropped her at her house earlier that evening. After ending the call with Edie, Victoria ended up calling her back when she remembered that David said he might swing by Eric's house. Edie then called Eric's father, Rodney Almendinger, to ask whether or not he had seen David that night. Rodney claimed that he hadn't. As it turned out, David's friends confirmed to Edie that he had never arrived at the Butte. At some point after arriving at Eric's, David seemed to disappear. Edie and her husband, Ben, were very worried that David, who always abided by his curfew, may have rolled his vehicle in the dark. They started driving throughout the area, and as time went on, they grew more and more concerned. And by the wee hours of the morning, they called the Alaska State Troopers to report their son is missing. A widespread search was put together quickly by police, and they were able to pull together an extensive team of both law enforcement agencies and volunteers. It's important to realize that this is a vast area that includes some difficult terrain. They were searching woods, the river, and even the mountains. They had access to multiple canine units and even brought in drones and helicopters to try to locate David and his vehicle. As Ben made his rounds talking to the kids in his son's life, a story cropped up that he shared with the police. Apparently, someone said that David may have driven out to Anchorage because Eric Almendinger needed a ride. This expanded their search to include highway patrol to be on the lookout for David's Bronco. His Bronco was located later that day, November 14th. However, it was not in Anchorage and David was not inside. A concerned citizen called in the Bronco to police after they found it abandoned on an isolated road called Solitude Street, which was roughly 26 minutes away from David's house. The vehicle had been burned. This was concerning, to say the least. And while the search for David continued, police began investigating those that interacted with him because it appeared there was foul play. The investigation started with Eric Almendinger as he was brought up as possibly riding in the Bronco with David to Anchorage. That was denied by him. He claimed that he hadn't even seen David in weeks, but that David did drop off one of their mutual friends the evening he disappeared. While law enforcement desperately tried to uncover what happened to David, the searches continued. But as days turned into weeks, people started wondering if they would ever find him. 
His story started to expand past the local media to national media, and his name began trending on social media. Hashtag find David Grunwald was all over Twitter and Facebook, and his family made a Facebook page so that everyone could stay up to date on the investigation. Though they didn't have a body, law enforcement was starting to believe that David had been murdered. Their eyes were trained on Eric Allmendinger, whose whereabouts that night seemed to be disputed. Eric claimed that he had been at a party in Anchorage the night of David's disappearance and that he went by himself by taxicab. This was not a story that could be confirmed, and before long they had video footage that put Eric in the Palmer area the night of David's disappearance. Mm-hmm. He was lying. Two weeks after David's disappearance on December 30th, police made their move and they arrested Eric Almendinger for first-degree murder and kidnapping. Wow, without a body. Yeah. That's surprising. A lot of this was happening really fast, so all the information I'm going to give you was um, kind of pulled together over interviews during those two weeks. So I think they thought he did it right away, but they had to build their evidence. Right. A tip was called in from a local who led police to believe they would find evidence of the murder of David Grunwald in a remote cabin in Matanuska Valley. So that gave them everything they needed to be like legally allowed to do searches. Mm. Before long, the troopers were armed with search warrants that allowed them to search Almendinger's electronics, his residence, and the entirety of the family's property. His personal tablet showed that he had been steps away from where David's torch Bronco was abandoned on the night that it was abandoned. Mm. So he was clearly there. In an old camper trailer on the Almendinger's property, evidence to seal Eric as the primary person of interest was found. First, overwhelming smell of bleach throughout the trailer. Someone had tried to clean up, but they didn't do a great job. Blood evidence was collected, and it was a positive match for David Grunwald. Wow. They also found his clothing and personal effects and a possible murder weapon. They actually found a handgun. Now, again, they still don't have a body. Right. So investigators tested David's clothing located in the trailer and discovered DNA samples that belonged to Eric Almendinger. And it just so happened he also had scratches on his body that were consistent with a struggle, like he had recently been in a fight. In the following days, other arrests were made. Video surveillance showed that Almendinger had been with other people that night, and slowly but surely, they began to get more and more information to help them understand what might have happened that night and who was involved. Apparently, David had been in the old 1971 camper on Almendinger's property. The boys were all drinking and smoking marijuana. Then Eric, who was apparently not inside the trailer at the time, got a phone call from one of the other guys who was in the trailer instructing him to bring his 40 caliber semi-automatic handgun. And he did. He brought it with him when he came inside. At some point in the evening, a few of the boys locked David in a bathroom after an intense struggle where one of them actually used the gun, potentially Eric, I believe it was Eric, to pistol whip David and knock him out. They then took David, loaded him into his own vehicle, drove him out to the Kunick River where he was executed with a single gunshot. The boys involved were Eric Almendinger, Devin Peterson, Austin Barrett, Bradley Renfro, not the actor, and Dominic Johnson. All of them were arrested. Now, no one directly pointed the finger at a specific person, 
But other witnesses came forward with a little bit of information, the little that they actually had. And according to one of them, Almendinger had confessed to another person not within that group that he had killed David. And at least one of the boys I mentioned was in the car with David the night he was killed. And the others all had a hand in it, whether it was helping him cover it up or bringing something to help clean it up. Mm. Um, They all had some involvement. So finally, one of the boys, 16, 16, 16 16-year-old Dominic Johnson, told police he could lead them to David's body. On December 2nd, three weeks after his disappearance, David's body was recovered by Alaska state troopers in a wooded area next to the Kunick River Road. David's body was taken for autopsy with state medical examiner Kenneth Gallagher. He found that David had small traces of marijuana in his system, which was consistent with the theory that David had been smoking pot with the boys earlier that night. His body showed significant injuries that were consistent with the struggle. In particular, he had tons of defensive wounds on his arms and hands. He had been brutally beaten. Contusions on his head were consistent with the pistol whipping, and he died due to a single gunshot wound to the head. It had gone clear through the front of his head and exited out the back of his skull. He had been looking directly at the person who murdered him. It was guilty across the board for the five boys arrested in connection with David's murder. Devin Peterson, Austin Barrett, Bradley Renfro, Dominic Johnson, and Eric Almendinger would all be sent to prison. Though most of them were teens when the crime happened, they were all treated as adults in court. And that is after they finally got there after all of the COVID delays, because this is, you know, fairly recent. Right. right. So a typical court case, it might take a couple of years to get in front of a judge. And then if there's another delay, which would have happened during COVID, I mean, some of these just happened, which kind of it's mind boggling to me because they're all so much older. Right. So the first of the five that went to court was 20-year-old Devin Peterson, who was 18 at the time of the murder. Initially, he was sentenced to a three-year stint in jail for a drug charge. But once they had him behind bars, more charges were added for tampering with evidence and hindering the prosecution and the death of David Grunwald. So he wasn't actively part of the murder, but he definitely was helping them. Now, this was because he hid the murder weapon and helped to set fire to David's Bronco. He was the one who actually gave the gas cans to the others to help burn the car. Peterson admitted guilt to all of these charges during the federal drug charge investigation, so he was pretty forthcoming from the beginning. The first to be convicted of murder was 23-year-old Austin Barrett. He accepted a plea deal, which resulted in a 65-year sentence, But 20 of those years were suspended, which meant he would receive a 45-year total sentence. After serving 15 years of that 45-year sentence, he becomes eligible to apply for parole, and that does include any time already served. So in about eight years, he will be eligible. Wow. Barrett was given time to speak to the court during his sentencing, and he opted to read a letter of apology for his part in the crime to David's parents. They, however, didn't wait around to hear it and left the room as they were not interested in an apology, but wanted to know what actually happened to their son. Dominic Johnson was found guilty of first-degree murder, kidnapping, and assault, among other charges. His lawyer attempted to get him leniency, claiming that because he didn't know his father, 
And oh, was, please. I know, just wait. He didn't know his father, and he was raised by his grandmother, and at the time of the murder, he was actually homeless, that he deserved some kind of waiver for murder or something. Mm. He mm-hmm. was handed a 99-year sentence, but of course, 20 of those years were suspended, so that's a total of 79 years. He was the one who actually took police to the location where the body was left, but he was also the one that told Almendinger to bring the gun. So if he hadn't mm. had if he never said bring the gun, would this have right. even happened? I thought I thought maybe they'd offer him a plea because he was willing to show them the body. But I don't know what happened there. Yeah. Eric Almendinger was considered the ringleader of the group. Eric was the only boy of the group who actually knew David. In court, he even positioned himself as a friend, calling David, quote, a good kid. The district attorney argued for the maximum sentence to be imposed for each crime, which would result in 209 years. But the jury ultimately convicted Almendinger of a total of 99 years for all nine charges. So this included... 99 years with 20 years suspended for first degree murder. So that's 79 years, five years for assault in the first degree, a 30 year charge for kidnapping with 20 years suspended. So a 10 year sentence, another five years for tampering with physical evidence, and then a $2,500 fine for arson and another $2,500 fine for vehicle theft. I don't get the suspended sentence yeah, shit. That's so weird. It seems silly to me. I don't know. This is what we mean, but you don't have to do it. But it's like every single one of these boys has that as a factor. So I'd, it must be mm. an Alaska thing. Yeah. Or maybe the juvenile aspect or something. Yeah, perhaps. In court, Almendinger read the following. I'm sure the words coming out of my mouth are irrelevant to them, meaning David's parents. But if it means anything, I am sorry. I'm sorry for what I did. I'm sorry for what I didn't do. The last of the four to be convicted was 21-year-old Bradley Renfro, who was 16 at the time of the murder. At his sentencing hearing, the district attorney again asked for the maximum sentence for every charge, which, like Almendinger, would have been 209 years. But the defense successfully argued that the fact that he was peer pressured into involvement and he didn't actually shoot the victim be considered. In the end, he was sentenced to 105 years. 30 of those years were suspended and he will ultimately serve about 75 years for the kidnapping and second degree murder of David Grunwald. He'll also have to pay the $5,000 worth of fines for vehicle theft and arson. Renfro will have an option for parole once he's served 35 years, putting him at the age of 51 for his eligibility. Though all of the boys were punished, we still don't know who actually pulled the trigger. None of them. No one copped to it? No one. And no one rolled? No, no one, one was rolled. like, hey, take some years off, I'll tell you. I think I think everyone believes it was Eric, but no one actually said Eric. And it makes you wonder How like, what kind of control yeah. he had over them. Or if they're or, scared if they all end up in the same prison together or something. Maybe. I mean, and they're from a very small area. I'm sure, I'm sure there's some threats involved. But I, I find that very surprising, especially these young, young ones. Yeah. They're going to grow up. Maybe they'll maybe they will come out later and say it. Maybe one of them will write a book or something. But yeah, that's surprising. We, we know very little information. We don't even know the motive. So at one point, Eric Almendinger said that basically he did it because David smoked up all his weed. And I just like I doubt oh, it. No. You have a farm. Of and it. you would. And you also wouldn't get everybody on board. 
Right. They'd just be like, we're not going to kill that guy. Plus, he was, if we can believe them, he was not in the trailer when they started the attack. So the other guys were the ones that locked him in the bathroom and started beating him up. Then they called Eric, who brought the gun, and he then really beat him up. And that's when they took him. So it's like, what happened? Was it this girlfriend? Was it drugs? Was Did he offend someone? Right. Like, we don't know. None of them will talk about it. That's really unusual. It's so unusual with this many people. Usually it's like a secret. It's one to two people might be able to. But yeah. after that, it's like, no, no yeah. fucking way. <laughs> yeah, that's and I'm surprised. I wonder, too, if the prosecution just didn't want them to take a deal. Like if that didn't matter or they hoped maybe the fact that it was vague, they could charge all of them on it more. Yeah, I don't know if maybe part of it was they wanted to pursue them as adults and didn't want to do a plea and wanted to like just punish them to right. the full extent of the law. I mean, they, one of them did do a plea deal. Um, so it's possible that they thought they could get out of it since no one would fess up to who did it. Yeah. Because you still have all of these people that could have possibly done it. If you're in court by yourself. Yeah. You could point your finger at any of the other four. You know, mm. I don't know. It's it's an interesting case. I don't know a lot about that. I'm going to I'm probably going to keep on it um, because as of this month, three of the men, Eric, Dominic and Bradley, have all filed for appeal. So oh. this is usual. Of course, they're going to drag it out a bit longer. The yeah. family's going to have to be involved. But hopefully the judge will find that the appeals are unjustified. But maybe we'll learn. Yeah. A little the bit appeal, more. They'll say I didn't pull the trigger. It was so and so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that that's going to come out of it. The loss of David at such a young age and in such a brutal way has been devastating for his family, friends, and really the entire city of Palmer. Despite the pain and not knowing exactly what happened to him and who killed him, they have all come together to memorialize David. His family and the community have set up a scholarship to help students pursue careers in mechanics and engineering, two of David's favorite things. There's also an annual memorial run, which raises money for the scholarship fund. There's a Facebook page run by the family called Justice for David Grunwald Palmer, Alaska, formerly called Find David Grunwald. If you follow this page, you'll receive regular updates from the family, including notes regarding the appeals. And there will be a link in our show sources uh, below. So you can click that and follow it if you want. Something I found interesting, um, obviously, like many of the cases we talk about, the parents get really involved in victim rights and advocating. Mm -hmm. His mom actually ran for local government. Really? She was running with the governor uh, as Republicans, but she did that for a while. She ended up stepping down. I don't know why. Um, this is what blew my mind. She was the head of the parole board from 2019 really? to 2022. And I'm just thinking, what happens if she stayed on it? And one of one of them came up for yeah, parole. Yeah, that's actually kind of surprising. Yeah. But she's not anymore. That that wouldn't be some sort of conflict of interest or something. So I wonder if she would have to step back from that and maybe there's someone that fills in. But I found, wow, like she took the victim's rights advocacy a little step further there. Yeah. Makes you wonder what kind of like <laughs> how the government's all involved there. It is a very small town. Yeah. But still, um, but I just thought that was that was cool of her. Like it was pretty fresh, this murder, but she was still trying to do so much yeah, for everyone Yeah, and actually else. following through and like, how can I make a difference for the future for exactly. other people? Exactly, yeah. Wow. It's an it's interesting one. So if you, you know, Linda, if you know more about this case, we'd love to hear from you. 
Well, it'd be fascinating if they ever come out and say who did it and to find out why it took them so long and and why they even did it in the first place. Yeah, that's what's killing me. It's it like kind of makes you think, was this a fight that just got out of control and then they felt like they had to like that happens? Yeah. Or was it something that had been talked about? Just planned a curiosity, you know, where they like, what would happen if we killed somebody? Like, you what know? if one of them, what if he like stole his girlfriend from one of them? They plotted it lured him out to the property under yeah. the guise of like free booze and marijuana and right. then like had it planned. Like we know nothing. Mentioning of Brad Renfro makes me think of that movie Bully that he oh, was in. Oh, I that fucking was a, love that. That was a true story. It was and it horrible. Had similar, similar aspects to it. Oh. I, yeah. I, he's done some good movies actually. What's that one he did? He did that movie with um, Jenna Malone. It's like American something. It's so fucking good. Something that has American in the title, I believe. Ameri- no, that's not it. Um, is it American Girl? Oh, it is. American Girl. What's that about? I never. I never it's a dark that. comedy. It's really good. I highly recommend. <clears throat> a pregnant teenager is determined to leave her trailer park home with the hope of living a happy family life. And I fucking love Jenna Malone. And I was a big fan of Brad Renfro. Uh, may he rest. And I remember it being really dark and funny. And Eric Von Detten is in it. And I loved him, too. <laughs> Who's that? He was the one from um, uh, The Princess Diaries, the, like, popular of blonde guy. Of course I know who that is. <laughs> yeah, I had a, a crushy crush on Brad Renfro as a kid. Oh, yeah. He, and the client? Oh, my God. Sleepers. Sleepers? Oh, shit. He was in every... No wonder... I mean, he had a... He did dark movies as yeah. a kid. Apt Pupil. Apt oh, Pupil yeah. is scary. Yeah, that's a good one. It's a really good one. Damn, I might have to watch some Brad Renfro <laughs> movies tonight. Was it? Uh, it was drug related. His death, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. They always are. It's really sad. I was just re- thinking about Jonathan Brandis the other day. Yeah. What a fucking tragic loss. Yeah. He was so handsome, fun, and talented. good and talented. He was yeah. in Ladybugs. Ladybugs. Sequest. Sequest. The shit. I watched that. I never missed an ep. We w- we just watched a clip from that last week, just by chance. And it was ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Really focused on in that, the best on that dolphin character. I mean, dolphins were <laughs> dolphins were hot they for were a while. Hot. They were and hot. I'm not talking about the guy that had sex with the dolphin. I'm talking oh about God. dolphin. We're talking shows. about Lisa Frank. <laughs> you know the documentary I'm thinking of, right? No. The guy that fell in love with the dolphin? He had an affair with it? They had a relationship. Is this like oh, a the si- scientist? Yeah. I saw the drunk, drunk history. history on that. Oh my God, watch the documentary. Oof. It's well, available online and it is not that long. The dolphin's wiener. He would be like, she she lured me. She. Yeah, yeah it, was it was awful. Sick. It was sick. It was, it's all for science. Mm-mm. No. God. Let me just practice these words real quick. The and Phil Collins. He's a funny looking man. Now who are you talking about? Yeah. Oh my God. All right. Farming community called Matanuska Valley Colony was set. Oh, that was. Oh, oh, I meant to end it. Friends that evening. Nope. Oh my God, Emily. The dolphin's wiener. It knows a girl dolphin. <laughs> the dolphin's clit. Oh God. I don't know. I figure they're big. The most foreign blooper. Foreign. <laughs> foreign. Forbidden, you mean? How dare 
<laughs> Either and both of you. <laughs> a little stupid. In my condition. I'm not the only one being corrected today. What, what condition? Of Are being you? an idiot. Oh. <laughs> I thought you were going to announce something. I'm like, no. How dare you? Uh, <laughs> You'd have to uh, shoop that poop right away. <laughs> Delete us the fetus. <laughs> You're so inappropriate. <laughs> No, I was just saying that sounded oh. like a Harry Potter spell. Oh. <laughs> Fetus elitus. <laughs> She's trying to fit in. I was it's trying cute. to make a Harry Potter joke. Oh. It's really cute. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>